There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. This is Dre, and welcome to Pate the People. On this episode, we have the news as usual with me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam. And we also are joined by Jossie, who's an incredible native uh, thinker, writer, and activist. Standing Rock, you have two communities. This pipeline could go either through this white community in North Dakota, which is almost redundant because pretty much every community in North Dakota is white. but or, or alternatively, it could go through a native community. And of course, as history requires, it's going to go through the native community. It's going to go through the darker skinned people's community in order to possibly, you know, pollute their water sources. God forbid we do that to the white people. Before we jump in, a lot of people ask me, like, what can I do? And one of the reasons why the podcast is set up like it is, is that I wanted the news to be a place where you were exposed to more ideas than you came with. And then for the interviews to be more in depth. And the first thing about the, like, what can you do is that you got to get close to an issue that if you don't know an issue well, if you're not curious about an issue, then it's just hard for you to make an impact. So I hope that you are finding something about equity, justice, race that interests you and you can like use this as a launching pad to continue to think about what you can do. And all the best organizing starts off small. Like it starts off with a couple people finding an issue saying, what can I do in my hometown or my state or my city? The other thing, though, is that we have a resource that we launched not too long ago called OurStates.org, O-U-R-States.org. And I'd encourage you to check it out. We're tracking legislation and state legislatures across the country, and you can find out which ones are positive, which ones are negative. You can definitely influence your state legislators. And there are a lot of people who like don't even realize what's happening in their state houses, and we've mapped it out for you. So I'd say uh, start there, too. Let's go jump into this episode. And the news with me, Brittany Pecknett, education professional, Clint Smith III, our resident academic, and Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Pecknett at Miss Pecchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Samsway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Dre at Dre, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. So our homegirl, Ava DuVernay, released A Wrinkle in Time this weekend. Pew, pew, pew. Thanks, So excited for her. I mean, she's out here doing incredible things. She's inspiring other directors. I don't know if you saw the ode to her that Ryan Coogler, of course, director of Black Panther, wrote. Um, but ap- he talked about all of the ways in which she just mentored him and looked out for him. And so Ava's out here, like, not just making great movies, but she's making opportunities for people of color. And it's lit. We love Ava. I haven't seen the movie yet, though. That letter was just beautiful because it, I think it really represented this idea of, like, building with one another. Like, I think to, uh, oftentimes, I won't say oftentimes, but sometimes uh, folks of color or marginalized folks uh, can operate under a sort of, like, um, scarcity mindset, right, where people think there's only, like, one spot for for some of us in, like, certain places. And I think that Ava and, and Ryan, like, are really pushing back against that and just being like, nah, like we are 
both working alongside one another to open up the possibilities for an entire new sort of canon of film. Um, and that's really exciting to see and something that I, I really appreciate. And, and I saw the film on Saturday uh, and, and it was just like a lovely film, you know, like I, and it's, I think also as a father now, I like feel mad sentimental when I see little, little black children on screen doing their thing. Cause I'm like, man, this would be an amazing thing to bring my son to, um, one day, you know, he's not, he's not on that movie tip yet. I think people who bring children to movies, you know, that's a whole different podcast, but <laughs> I'm just like, come on, we don't need to hear that. I bought tickets even though I couldn't go just to support. I'm glad to hear it was good though. You can still go though, Brittany. It's not like it's out of movie theaters. No, I know. I'm just saying I want to give her opening weekend money and I'm not going to get their opening weekend. I'm just you know what? Time. That was shady to write, but it's cool. <laughs> Sam, go ahead. <laughs> I was saying, you know, what's also incredible about Ava DuVernay is the range that she brings to the work. You know, when you think about a documentary like 13th or, you know, Selma bringing the civil rights movement back to life uh, and now Wrinkle in Time, which is, you know, more of a, a children's movie, but also an incredible sort of epic piece. Um, it, it really demonstrates talent across multiple different sort of verticals of types of movies. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what she brings to the table next. Well, on to less positive news. The conversation about gun reform, gun control in this country is reaching a pretty epic pitch, uh, especially as we are talking about uh, arming teachers in schools. And it's interesting because in the education community, the the internal conversation was like, hey, this conversation isn't real. Every time there's a mass school shooting, somebody mentions arming teachers. It never really has any legs. Well, this time it definitely has legs. Um, and I think a lot of people are quite shocked and surprised by just how quickly this is moving, including support all the way from the White House. Um, but what we now know is that this is not just a proposal. It's not just theoretical. There are hundreds of school districts across the U.S. that are already arming teachers. Um, most of them are small and or rural school districts. Um, who have found that uh, this is how they want to approach the problem. It's interesting. I was I was reading about this in the New York Times, and there's a sheriff um, of a small town who helped push this thing through in in his region. And what he essentially said was, "We I can't wait on the federal government or local stakeholders to actually fix this for us. Like we have to do it for ourselves." Um, and on that, we agree, right? That actually we know time and time again, Congress and the people who should be responsible for taking up this conversation are not doing so, um, and are, are failing our children every single time. And yet I would hope that this isn't the solution. Uh, so obviously three of us on this podcast used to be teachers ourselves. And I think the thing we're not having, we're not talking about in this conversation is what will it teach our children to arm teachers? Uh, not just the havoc that it will cause and it will cause havoc, not just the danger that it brings and it will bring danger, but what are we teaching our children? Um, I'm hoping that we are equipping our teachers to help un young people understand what Gandhi said, that an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Um, but if we put hands and uh, guns in the hands of teachers, we are sending a very clear message to our young people um, that's, that doesn't actually set them up to decrease violence in their communities, um, but to fight fire with fire in a way that can endanger us all. Um, and, and that's really unfortunate because it's looking like the federal uh, legislation that we need is once again not going to come. It seems like this is going to go away quietly um, as 
Congress works on things like the bank bill and other things. Um, it should be noted that uh, in Florida, there was just a bill signed into law about this. But the bill, of course, is quite imperfect, as it includes uh, uh, tenants about arming teachers uh, and about putting more police officers in school. So if we can't wait on the government to fix this, then then the question is still still remains. What is the solution? Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that in lieu of actually doing something about this, that there is an industry that exists now that makes money. So there is an Oklahoma school district that has put bulletproof shelters in several elementary school classrooms following the Florida school shooting. So in the Healdon, H-E-A-L-D-T-O-N school district, they installed shelters, uh, the first of its kind in seven elementary school classrooms and two middle school classrooms that can hold up to 35 students and two teachers. So if somebody breaks into the school, then they can like run into this bulletproof shelter. And you think about like, we could actually just change the gun laws. We could restrict access. We could stop allowing people to buy bullets, to buy these guns. But instead what we're doing, like people are becoming gazillionaires off of like bulletproof shelters in, in classrooms and like all this other technology. And I think about my classroom, my classroom was tiny. Like I taught seventh graders, they were 11, they were growing, they were big. I had 30 kids in my room. Like, I don't know where pie would have gone in our school, let alone in my classroom. So it's like, who, who is this stuff for ultimately? And just the, the amount of money, like the industry that's being created to do everything but what's right is something I never forget. So this reminds me a lot of the body cameras conversation with regards to policing, where in lieu of changing the laws and policies and funding structures that give police tremendous power to be violent towards civilians and, and to escape accountability, uh, when they are violent, we're sort of investing in this entire infrastructure around body cameras and around other measures uh, to be able to effectively sort of deal with the aftermath of the violence uh, instead of preventing the violence in the first place. And so I think about, you know, in this economy, wh what does it mean where there is an incentive to build an entire sort of industry around dealing with sort of picking up the pieces after a disaster instead of investing on the front end uh, to prevent those disasters from happening in the first place? And the second piece uh, about this is, you know, what Brittany said around the number of states that already are arming teachers. So according to Vice News, there are 14 states that already arm teachers uh, and another 16 states that give local school boards the authority to decide whether school staff can carry guns. Uh, and so, like, I didn't know that this was happening uh, until now, until this national conversation about uh, gun control and gun violence uh, erupted until, you know, Trump and others started talking about arming teachers. And it sounded so, you know, wild and, and, and radical. But in fact, you know, this is something that's already happening and is happening under the radar. And in many cases now we're already having to to think about, you know, a reality where there are teachers in at least one school in at least 14 states that are armed. And, and this is students' everyday uh, experience in these classrooms, and, and what does that mean uh, in terms of, uh, one, accountability, so, you know, what happens when uh, those firearms are used or are threatened, uh, whether it's against a student or somebody else, like, is that being tracked? Like, is there an accountability structure in place to actually uh, address that? Like, like I, I just realized how much I don't know about, like, this topic, because I had presumed that this was already... Uh, something that was sort of so wild that it that it had not yet been put in place, but in fact it has. Yeah, and I'll just say I think I'm thinking a lot about DeRay's point around the sort of monetary incentives around this, and 
and like people have to remember that the gun industry is a like over a $32 billion industry, like annually, $32 billion. And, and you, you think about the incentives of these, these companies is to obviously continue to like monetize and, and create, um, whether it be guns or different extensions of what it means to be a gun owner um, or to live in a society saturated and consumed by guns in, to varying degrees, uh, is that they like their shareholders benefit from this, right? So they actually, there is much to be said about what it means to um, provide, like providing teachers with uh, guns, providing the places to lock the guns up, providing the training for the guns. Like all of these things are not, it is not only that they are, uh, clearly not interested in tackling the sort of like more deeper, more the deeper and sort of more systemic nature of the issue, but that the incentive is actually to create a sort of larger ecosystem of gun and gun training and sort of gun adjacent uh, entities that, that contribute to the bottom line. And I think about this in the same way that I think of prisons, right? Where even things that are presented in a uh, an ostensibly benevolent way, right? Or the people who, for example, are interested, in, they talk about, um, oh, well, we're really interested in making sure that reentry is more effective. Um, but oftentimes those people have like a vested interest in uh, the companies who are making the ankle bracelets, right? And so like those are the companies that, that you know, will say, oh, we're interested in uh, developing more effective reentry programs or uh, releasing more people on parole, but we're just creating different types of surveillance that uh, have, you know, create different types of uh, necessities that ultimately go into the pockets of, um, of people who, who don't have the best interests of, of society and heart. So my piece of news is a law that just got signed in Washington state, uh, which is going to strengthen the deadly force law uh, regarding police. So Washington state has the worst law with regards to how and when police can use deadly force. It lets police, uh, it makes it almost impossible to actually prosecute police uh, who shoot uh, another civilian because prosecutors uh, up till now have had to prove that the police officer acted with malice. And so you you can imagine as a prosecutor, like you would have to get you know, a substantial amount of evidence. You you might need, you know, a comments beforehand showing that this is premeditated from the officer and, and a whole range of other things in order to actually prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the officer not only was acting unreasonably, but was also acting with malice uh, in order for that officer to be charged. And, and now they have actually removed that standard of having to show malice, which makes it easier to prosecute officers. Um, and this is important because this happened as a result of uh, activism and a ballot initiative that a number of organizations in Washington state uh, have come together to put on the ballot that would do just this. Uh, and so in Washington state, when you get enough signatures to put something on the ballot, the state legislature has to decide whether to just approve that policy uh, or to pull it, put it on the ballot. Uh, and so they've chosen in this case to actually just go ahead and sign this into law with a couple of small alterations. Uh, but ultimately, this is good news, and it shows the power of the people to actually you know, demand change with regard to policing, something that 
you know, as we know, in most states, uh, the standards for police deadly force are woefully inadequate. There are actually only four states that require police uh, to even attempt uh, other reasonable options before using deadly force. But Washington was the worst, uh, and now it is in line with other states. And so uh, I'm hopeful that progress can continue to be made, those standards can continue to be strengthened in other states, um, and that ballot initiatives can be a central component of the strategy in order to achieve that. Yeah, this is certainly a really critical step. Uh, and shout out to all of the amazing organizers and activists in Washington State who helped make this happen. Um, I think it's really important to continue to look at the details. Um, it's interesting because when you read the language, as you were saying, Sam, part of the the new standard is a reasonable officer standard. And what that means is that juries are essentially forced to ask the question, if the deadly force was consistent um, with the policy and training that the officer received and, the, and therefore what a reasonable officer would do in that situation, which means that uh, these, these things work in tandem, right? That whatever the policy, the training are, the department regulations are, that will affect what the outcome is in the case of, of deadly force. If we look at what happens to Charlena Lyles, it doesn't just matter um, that there may or may not have been malice. It also matters how that police officer was trained and what the use of force policies are in that department. And of course, we have done at Campaign Zero a lot of research on the use of force policies and know that there are eight policies that help reduce police violence um, when they are all used together. But this continues to reinforce the point that none of these are solutions that can occur in isolation. Um, and it's going to be important that we support activists in our communities and in other communities as they continue to pursue to multiple changes that will all work together to keep our community safer. Right. To that point, you know, around what is reasonable for an officer given their training, you know, we know, you know, the Police Executive Research Forum has looked at police training and they found that in order to become a police officer, recruits uh, get on average 58 hours of firearms training, which is training to shoot uh, center mass, which is essentially a kill shot. Uh, and only eight hours of de-escalation training, eight hours of training in uh, how to interact with folks who are in a crisis or a mental health uh, crisis. And so, you know, as long as the training is also structured in a way that is inadequate, then that also lets officers off the hook when it comes to prosecution. So only thing I'll say is that uh, according to the Washington Post police uh, database or, or the database rather that uh, documents how many people have been killed by police over the course of, of a year, uh, it shows that almost 200 people uh, have been killed by police this year. And, and I think it's just important to remember that because we are in this moment where we are inundated with so much other information and so much other news and that the 24-hour news cycle is is largely dominated by um, things that are coming out of the White House. And, and that's not to say that we should not be covering those things, but, but it is to say that it is important to remember that as we try to bring, a, bring up on this podcast, like there's so many things that are happening uh, that are not being covered. And, and I think some people can operate under the false notion that, uh, that less people are being killed by police than, than previously were. Um, uh, in the sort of day, the the day, the nascent stages of Black Lives Matter in sort of 2014, 15, 16, um, when we were sort of seeing these images all the time on our on our timeline. But uh, but I think it's important for people to know that like this is still happening and it's still happening every single day, and uh, and it's important that we continue to talk about it even when other folks aren't talking about it. And what's interesting, just for a little context, with in Washington, um, the malice standard requires that the prosecutors prove evil intent, which is what makes it 
like almost impossible that like proving that they thought about it, that it was like the intent was purely evil is a legal standard that has never been met in Washington around this. There have been about 200 people, a little bit over 200 killed in Washington in between like 2005 and uh, only one person ever charged. Nobody, no police officer ever convicted. So it's good that this, uh, this is moving forward. And it's like Sam said, like a testament to the power of citizen-led petitions. I wish that all 50 states had citizen-led petitions. We talked about this in the podcast last week. They don't. Uh, that would actually be a really powerful avenue for change in a lot of places. And so for me, for a bit of background, um, so Dr. King we, was killed in 1968. Uh, and soon after that, Lyndon B. Johnson and Congress passed the Fair Housing Act, uh, which was supposed to prevent housing discrimination. But uh, unfortunately, it didn't have a lot of enforcement mechanisms. Uh, and so nine years later, they, Congress passed the Community Reinvestment Act, which was supposed to provide sort of more support for folks who were previously prevented from the opportunity to, to move into certain neighborhoods, um, specifically thinking of black folks and immigrants um, and, and providing them with the sort of segue and the resources and the opportunities to do so. Um, and so this is part of the larger history of redlining in this country, which we've talked about before. But just a quick reminder, the federal government essentially like drew lines on maps and shaded them in uh, the color red and other colors. But red was to signify that they should not uh, loan to people in those areas because they were, quote, uh, infiltrated by Negroes. And and so we talk about redlining as if it is this sort of artifact of the past, and it is this thing that uh, prevented a lot of sort of intergenerational wealth from accumulating, which is true. But Reveal, um, which was a, is a great podcast and is a great site, um, they did a sort of deep dive on this a few weeks ago and found that the there are a lot of manifestations of redlining that continue to persist uh, in different forms. And so they found that in 60 metro or 61, rather, metro areas around the country, um, that when you can, even when you control for income and when you control for the loan amount being given uh, and the neighborhood, uh, that black people are far less likely to get approved for a loan than their white counterparts. This included Atlanta, Detroit, Philadelphia, St. Louis, San Antonio. Um, the worst were uh, Mobile, Alabama and Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, and and this was also the case for Latinos, for Asians in Washington, D.C., where I live. Um, Reveal found that all four groups were significantly less, significantly more likely to be denied a home loan uh, than whites. And, and this is really important. And we've talked about the, the way that housing is the single greatest generator of of intergenerational wealth um, and that black home ownership is actually at its lowest rate since the 1960s. And the median white wealth uh, is 15 times more than the median net worth of a black family. Um, and the most recent data shows that for black families, the median uh, net worth is $9,000. And as for white families, it's $132,000. Um, and for Latino families, it's uh, $12,000. So so there's much to be said about this. And, and as DeRay has been sort of talking about, we need to uh, make sure that we're continuing to bring the conversation about uh, wealth um, and, and the wealth gap to the forefront of these conversations and, and make sure that we, we understand um, and folks continue to understand the implications of this. But the, the reveal study was really illuminating um, in showing how how this how segregation persists um, and, and how black families are not 
given the opportunity to continue still get loans to buy homes in neighborhoods that would provide them a completely different type of economic and social mobility. I'm so glad you brought this up, Clint. And, and you know, it's not just about the denials of loans to people of color. It's also about the loan type. And when you combine what you're talking through, Clint, with what's happening in the bank bill that's working its way through Congress right now, we actually have a real issue. So if you don't know, um, the Senate has found a way to bipartisanly pass um, a, a bank bill that would essentially deregulate a lot of banks. Um, as a side note, I find it fascinating, as I've said before, that they could get together bipartisanly to do this, even though they haven't been able to pass a Clean Dream Act or figure out how to work bipartisanly uh, on gun control. But that's besides the point. Um, but this bank bill in particular deregulates a lot of small and mid-sized banks, so you think of like like your community banks, where a lot of people of color and previously unbanked or underbanked people go to actually get the resources that they need. But one of the things that this bill will do is actually stop requiring small and mid-sized banks to report on the type of loan that they are giving people by race. So they always have to report what... Um, they always have to report what their lending patterns are by race, but they don't, they're not no longer going to have to include the type of loan, right? So a traditional mortgage with a fairly low interest rate is very different than a subprime mortgage uh, with a very high interest rate, especially ones that can be uh, renegotiated and where we can see prices balloon uh, two or three years into the actual mortgage agreement. These are the same kind of subprime loans that were at the heart of the housing crisis. And we know that some of the bigger banks, like Bank of America and Wells Fargo have been found guilty of targeting Black and Latinx communities for these subprime loans, for taking advantage of people's desperation and wanting to own a home and recognizing that they were being denied from traditional mortgages and so being put into subprime mortgages. It has bankrupted families. It is part of the reason why the wealth gap exists and is being made worse for people of color. And at the end of the day, we track what we care about. And so if we're not willing to track what kind of loan are going to people of color, that should be a signal to all of us that this government is not really willing to invest in stemming the tide of modern redlining. And speaking about the wealth gap, you know, we talk about this massive wealth gap over $100,000 uh, between black and white households. And the single largest contributor to that wealth gap is homeownership. It's like not education. It's not the pay gap. Like it is homeownership. And so much so that if you had, if there wasn't this gap in homeownership rates that, again, was caused by a, a legacy of public policy denying uh, loans to black homeowners or, or, or prospective homeowners, uh, a legacy of banks refusing to lend to black homeowners, if it was not for that gap in homeownership, uh, black families would have four and a half times as much wealth as they have today, and it would close the wealth gap by a third. Moreover, even with equalizing rates of homeownership, we know that oftentimes uh, black folks are housed, uh, intentionally so, in areas that are, more, are segregated. And even when, when black folks are moving to, to white areas, there's this phenomenon of white flight uh, where you know black neighborhoods appreciate in value at a lower rate than white neighborhoods. So if you account for that, that all, that it would increase black wealth $17,000 more on top of everything, another 241% increase. We close the wealth gap by another 16%. So housing is like the central thing that needs to be addressed if we're serious about closing the total gap in resources between black and white families. And all too often when we talk about, you know, these inequities, it ends up in a conversation about everything except for housing. 
Um, and when you look at the data, like we have to have a conversation about housing if we're serious about equity with regard to the economics of between black and white families. I've said recently that I don't think we're talking about the racial wealth gap enough. And people are like, no, we are talking about it. And I think that what's happening is that I think that we're talking about the wage gap a lot. I think that five for 15 help people understand the income disparities and that the wage gap is a real problem. I think that we've actually done a lot of really positive work around the wage disparities amongst uh, amongst gender and by race. But the wealth gap is something that I think we still haven't, we don't have the public language for. And the easiest way that I've been able uh, to think about income and wealth is that income is, is money you can spend today. Wealth is money you can spend in the future. And like, there are people who make high incomes, who make like $100,000, $120,000, which is money they can spend right now, who don't own a single thing, who have no assets, who like don't have a retirement account, who don't have savings really. And like, that means that they have no money to spend in the future, which is wealth. That like when the money today dries up, when this paycheck goes away, which is income, which is a wage, then they'll be screwed. And to close a wealth gap means that there is intergenerational wealth, that there's like a legacy. I know that like when I went to be a teacher, it's like we had no money. I slept on the floor like until I got my first paycheck as a teacher because I couldn't afford a bed, you know? Like we didn't, there was no wealth in the family to like help out with that. Like we just had to sort of tough it out. I think that the wealth gap is something we still got to talk about that like the wage gap, I think people get, and I think they think they understand the wealth gap, but the wealth gap is much deeper. Now for my piece of news, it's about uh, Twitter. So Twitter worked with MIT, uh, gave them a unique data set so they could do a study about how uh, news spread on the platform. It is the first study of its kind. And what they did in the study is that they analyzed every major contested news story in English across the span of Twitter's existence, about 126,000 stories tweeted by 3 million users over more than 10 years. And what they found by every single metric, every common metric, was that falsehood consistently dominated the truth on Twitter, that fake news and false rumors reached more people, penetrated deeper into social networks, and spread much faster than accurate stories. So... One of the things that actually came out of it was that it's not bots. Like, when the findings first came out, they were like, oh, the bots. But one of the conclusions of the study is that users actually prefer just sharing things that aren't true, that the researchers controlled for every difference between accounts originating rumors, like whether the person that had more followers was verified or, or the, whether it looked like it was a bot. And falsehoods were still 70% more likely to get retweeted than accurate news. And they also showed that a false story reached about 1,500 people six times quicker or an average than a true story. And that while false stories outperform the truth on every subject, political false stories actually went further than everything else. So I thought that was interesting because I would have thought that like it would have been the bots or da da da. But the thought that people just are attracted to things that are untrue, I guess makes sense to me. Uh, but that stuff spreads so quickly on a platform like Twitter. And that's like the beauty and curse of Twitter, right? That like things spread really quickly, but now they can prove that like false things actually just spread so much. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I looked at the study and it seems to confirm everything that we had thought and sort of felt uh, in seeing the, the current political climate that we're in, seeing the types of fake news and how rapidly that was becoming a problem. And I wonder, you know, in that current environment, when the entire ecosystem seems to be advantaging and incentivizing fake news uh, and and lies, like what does that mean for addressing things like the current president and and the political uh, political strategies that are premised on relying on that relying on that reality to spread false news quicker 
before the re- before the truth can actually come out or correct it. Uh, and we see, you know, Trump using the strategy often. We see many folks, uh, particularly on the right and, and from the, you know, the alt-right or, or the Nazi right, uh, spreading lies so quickly about things. And, and they're not really being a, a, an opportunity to correct those lies, having millions of people see something and not see the correction uh, or no correction being made. And, and I just don't know, like, structurally how Twitter as an, an infrastructure and not only Twitter, but also Facebook and especially YouTube – can actually build their platforms differently in order to to either shut those things down, uh, you know, a, as they are shared immediately, or to to figure out how to disincentivize people from sharing them further uh, as soon as they're determined to be false. Uh, but that's something that that has to be fixed if we're serious about a, like an exchange of ideas that isn't corrupted uh, moving forward. And I just want us to be clear about the scale of this, um, not just how much fake news is being shared on multiple uh, social platforms, because obviously we've talked about Facebook before, Um, but just how much people are using social. There was a time when the vast majority of people did not have a social networking profile on any site. As of last year, 81% of the population have at least one social networking profile, if not more. Uh, And what that means is that the vetting that happens, that used to happen through kind of more traditional mainstream media sources, just isn't happening happening at the same scale anymore. And mainstream media sources are having to f- figure out a way to to f- find and create space online just like everyone else. So there's a new sense of competition and a new level of competition for them when sharing information and journalistic standards, as we know, just do not apply to folks who are just trying to go viral, who just want to, who are just interested in clickbaits and shares and followers and retweets in order to up uh, their ability to advertise uh, from these fake news sites. And so, um, um, it's interesting because when you when you read the article that you shared, DeRay, you know, they were talking a bit about just how complicated it is to actually fix this um, and and do so in a way that still respects the kind of organic nature of the Internet and of social networking. Um, and the, the recommendation for folks in the meantime was to think before you retweet. And it sounds trite, and yet it is so completely necessary. Uh, yes, the, the companies have to be vigilant about protecting us from this, but we also have to be vigilant about protecting one another from misinformation. Yeah, and I think just an anecdotal example of this is that yesterday I was kind of scrolling through the timeline and and I saw a tweet from what looked to be uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, who obviously has been at the sort of forefront of the the Russia probe in in, um, in many ways and and has been a sort of very public figure over the, since the uh, beginning of the Trump administration and and it was a tweet of him. I, I can't exactly remember remember what it was saying, but. Uh, but I remember it had like 5,000 retweets and, and it seemed like it was, I was like, this is an interesting thing for a congressperson to say. It didn't seem like it made made complete sense. And I clicked on the profile um, and this was clearly like not actually Adam Schiff, right? This is a profile of someone, it had 15 followers, um, but it had the same uh, avatar photo. It had the same, I, it spelled one letter different. I think it may have added an F in the the at name, um, and and I think that that is just one small example of how easy it is that like anybody can make a fake account for any person in the world, and and Twitter ultimately may get to it or they may not, but like that someone could could position themselves as uh, as a, a member of Congress making a statement, um, and that you know. I, I was looking for it today and I didn't find it. So I guess they, they caught it, but that it can get thousands and thousands of retweets and that there are people 
today who still don't know that that was not actually the congressman's actual Twitter account who are navigating the world uh, with that information shaping how they're thinking about certain things. It also makes me think, you know, in reading the study, it was pretty clear that it shows that lies spread further than the truth, right? That lies will reach more people than truths will. And so, especially on, on Twitter, but I imagine that's true on a number of platforms now. And so the question is, like, uh, I keep wondering about, you know, these Trump supporters, not only Trump supporters, but other people who it seems are impervious to the truth or who have just not been exposed to the truth. And I, and I keep wondering, like, how does this happen? Is this like an intentional decision? Are people just intentionally avoiding it? I think obviously there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people who are refusing to acknowledge truths. And I think there's also a lot of people who the truth just doesn't reach, right? Like the truth does not spread as far as lies. And many people are in their echo chambers who are just being exposed to these lies, right? And and how do we actually confront that and disrupt that in a really intentional way? Um, that's not just expecting this to all be sorted out, because as we've seen, that is not what the data is showing is actually going to happen. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Angela. A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit kellybluebook.com to get the journey started. Now, my conversation with Jossie, incredible native thinker, activist, and writer. Well, Jossie, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Oh, man, it's an honor. Honor. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your patience, and thank you for what you do. Now, we met originally at the DNC, which seems like it was so long ago, and so much has changed yeah. since then. Uh, I know that you supported uh, Nikita <laughs> when she ran for mayor in Seattle. And I know that yeah. you've been doing a lot of work uh, since since then. What's up with you since the DNC? Yeah, you know, um, uh, first of all, we took great photos. Me, you, and uh, Kendrick Sampson uh, <laughs> oh, took great yeah. photos. All all very photogenic. You know, nice nice brown melanated skin. <laughs> uh, I, I have those photos if you want them. But uh, you know, the world has yeah. There's there's been a, a pole shift since then because I don't think irrespective of whether a person supported Hillary or 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 uh, Bernie Sanders in the primary, I don't think the one outcome that most of us anticipated was that Donald Trump would become president. And so that just changed the conversation fundamentally. And, I, you know, obviously we'll talk about that later. But um, and then and then Nikita, she she um, as part of a very important campaign, since there's never been a woman of color that's been mayor in Seattle. And unfortunately, women of color have been vastly underrepresented, you know, nationally in, in mayoral and all types of elections. Um, she ran a very important uh, campaign here in Seattle and really gave the women, um, including the current mayor, Jenny Durkin, who won the election, permission to run. She was the one that got out ahead of everybody else and said, um, you know, we're going to take on all comers when Ed Murray was by far the presumptive, uh, you know, mayor, the, the incumbent. She said, I'm going to take him on anyway because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, ultimately she took a very close third and a top two primary. And it was a noble effort. But um, as has happened many times throughout history, um, a woman of color has, um, you know, she, she laid the way for a lot of white women to come afterwards. And the white women bore the benefit of that. What I've been doing since then, bro, honestly, is post-election, um, I've been gone for the better part of seven years. Like, I've been, I've been on the road. Um, 
I've been, you know, trying to build with different schools, different educational systems nationally, internationally, within my own communities, native communities, um, and trying to build coalitions between specifically native and black uh, folks, uh, you know, politically and economically. And I've been gone a whole bunch. And I have two I have two sons. And since that time, since the end of uh, Nikita's primary, I've been just really, really, really trying to focus on um, on family, man. Going back from the DNC, uh, who do you think is going to run for president in 2020? I- I've seen you tweet some ideas. I know that you supported Bernie uh, previously. Like, what are your thoughts yes. about what we do in 2020 or even what we do in 2018? On my end, you know, I, I happen—in 2020, um, National Congress of American Indians had a, had a conference in Washington, D.C. two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago. And Elizabeth Warren was a guest who showed up without much fanfare initially because she didn't want it publicized. And um, and I understand that because she has a certain amount of, of you know, th- there's a little bit of um, brand— Tarnishment within uh, certain communities and certainly within the Native community. And um, I was there. I happened to be there speaking at a Department of Education event. It wasn't even there for National Congress of American Indians, but I'm on the plane and I run into a whole bunch of Native people. And like Chris Rock said, you know, you don't see a family of Native people at Red Lobster and you definitely don't see a you know, whole bunch of Native people on a plane unless something's going on. So like, oh, I'm able to ascertain there's a conference going on. At this right. at this conference, one of my good friends, his name is Ryan Ramirez, and he's a Democratic dude. You know, he's he's high up in the machinations and stuff, and he's native. And he was telling me that she's trying to put forth actually what her narrative is in regards to native people, you know, because she has some bridges to mend because there's a, at least the, 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 the visual, the optic that she benefited from claiming native ancestry. In previous job, um, you know, job, uh, you know, opportunities and said that she was native and she's not. And so she went there to try to make amends. And I think it was actually a really, really successful effort to do that. She told her story well. And most importantly, she redirected and centered actual native people in the conversation. And that's something that not a whole bunch of our allies or so-called allies do. We're always the invisible folks. Um, She said the other day, Friday, that she doesn't she 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 worded it really slickly. She said she, right now she's not running for uh, for president. What she meant was that she's running for Senate in 2018. She's running for reelection. I think she'll probably run in 2020. I think she's a you know, she's a solid candidate. She's brilliant. Um, but she suffers from same of the, some of the same stuff that Bernie, who I did support, as you pointed out, uh, he suffered from, which is people of color just don't really rock with her for whatever reason. And I, I, I don't I don't know why. So, um, you know, without her in the mix, you know, you have a, a selection of folks. Joe Biden looks like he's kind of clearing the trees for a possible run. Um, uh, Kamala Harris, um, I hope I hope she runs. Um, but I don't there's nobody that stands out, at least at this very early juncture, 2018 midterm elections as somebody that you say or at least that I say. Wow, I really hope that person runs. By by 2015, our, uh, I was already you know very much on the Bernie train. Um, this this year, I, I don't know. There's there's some folks because the Democratic brand in general has some issues with it, and I hope they're able to you know and some existential stuff that's going on between the remnants of the Bernie folks and the remnants of the Hillary people. 
and and they got to figure that stuff out. They 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 really have to figure that stuff out before you know we can really support fully because I don't think the Democratic Party truly knows who it is after you know after they got their asses whooped in 2016. That makes sense to me. What are and this is because I just don't know. So I'm asking you as somebody who knows yes, sir. more than me. What are native policy issues like? What are the policy issues that you think the community that you stand for and represent are interested in? Uh, yeah. that we should all be thinking about. Thank you for that question. Absolutely. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. So a lot of the questions are the same things as with, quote unquote, normal people, everybody else, except for that oftentimes they're magnified. So what I mean by that is um, for Native people, uh, health care is a very big issue. We have a treaty obligation. So we signed these agreements called, I'm not explaining to you, DeRay, I know you know this stuff, but everybody else. For Native people, we signed these agreements called treaties with the United States government. And what it was, was the United States government wasn't giving us anything. It was us acquiescing. Okay, in order to live peaceably with you white people, we are going to give you these really, really large chunks of land called New York, called California, called Washington State, called Minneapolis, Minnesota, whatever. We, we're going to give you these really, really big chunks of land. In exchange for that, we're going to take this little tiny piece of land that are now called Indian reservations, and we're also going to take certain things. We're going to take a right to education. Um, we're going to take a right to education. We're going to take a right to be able to use our land peaceably and quietly. We're going to take a right to health care. You're going to take care of our health care because we're giving you all this land, and we're going to do these things in perpetuity. Now, it hasn't quite played out like that. The United States government, as a matter of historical record, has violated every single treaty that was ever signed with every native community. One of those violations has been health care. We're criminally underfunded in our health care that we gave very, very good consideration in the form of millions of acres of land for. And so the health care that's conversation that's happening, it's even more acute within our communities because our communities are largely very, very poor. For example, the community where I come from, the Blackfeet Indian Reservation in Browning, Montana, we have about 75% unemployment. And that number is not reflective of people's unwillingness to work. There's just no jobs. There's just no economic development. There's no investment within those areas. And so when you have poor people, you have a certain set of socioeconomic problems and those medical issues that go with that. And within those poor communities, we have that extremely, extremely underfunded health care system. And so health care is a really big issue. Veterans, because a disproportionate amount of Native people serve in the military. I'm not exactly sure why, but but yeah, we have the highest percentage of military service in the country. Um, infrastructure. If you go to any particular Indian reservation, um, you, you will find that our roads are absolutely atrocious because there's nobody out there but Indians, so who cares? We don't have to fix these roads. Education. Um, Native people, our schools are like healthcare, criminally underfunded. And we have, you know, so we graduate, Native people graduate 69% of the, uh, of the time, um, which is the lowest percentage in the country. And people wonder why. Well, it's because our schools, there's no investment into our schools. And then when you add to that a person like Betsy DeVos, who doesn't want to invest in any schools, well, that has a compounding effect within schools that were already underfunded. Um, 
And then we have other things like, you know, the very important things like uh, the conversations that are going on around fossil fuels right now. Um, we have a lot of activism and a lot of organizing around fossil fuels because we see these lands as actually sacred. You know, these lands aren't just someplace that tr as a matter of transaction, we purchased a statute warranty deed for this house and said that we're going to live here. And when the market goes up, we're going to sell it. We, in fact, can trace oftentimes our lineage to a particular place for tens of thousands of years. I, I was reading this story about in here, the Pacific Northwest, about this fishing village that was found to be 14,000 years old. And they found all these tools from this fishing village right here. And I can't pronounce the name because it's a it's a Coast Salish name. And oftentimes those names are really complicated. But if it's 14,000 years old and we've been living peaceably there and now you want to frack in this land, you want to you want to drill oil in this land. That's literally. And what is uh Yes, what sir. is fracking for people that don't know? Um, it's it's uh, hydraulic fracturing. So it's 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 um, horizontal drilling. And um, it's where they 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 go in with a pipe and you literally blow uh, water and all kinds. of It's nasty water. It's not like, you know, good bath water or good drinking water is is nasty water. And that, so it's already polluting the ground that you're sticking it in. And you blow this water under extremely high pressure to try to force oil and natural gases out. It's a really, really disgusting process, but it's, you know, it, it's something that out of our never ending, never ending thirst for for more fossil fuels, even though the price of oil is at the lowest it's been in a really, really, really long time. Um, we, we can't satiate that that desire. What you literally have is you've pushed us as far as we can go. But now you're trying to make the place that we are this last place that we can go uninhabitable. Because you want to, you know, mess up the water sources like happened in Standing Rock. Standing Rock, you have two communities. This pipeline could go either through this white community in North Dakota, which is almost redundant because pretty much every community in North Dakota is white. But or or alternatively, it could go through a native community. And of course, as history requires, it's going to go through the native community. It's going to go through the darker skinned people's community in order to possibly you know, pollute their water sources. God forbid we do that to the white people. And so those environmental issues tend to be uh, really, really close to home. I, I, you know, Winona LaDuke was here yesterday in the city of Seattle. And Winona LaDuke, for those of you folks who don't, do not know, you need to read her. She's absolutely amazing, a brilliant Anishinaabe author and scholar. And she, you know, she she really, really is able to illustrate these economically predatory behaviors that really pick on they call it environmental racism now. But, you know, that pick on uh, brown and black communities because it's not just native people, but it seems to happen in particular um, with with a particular focus on native communities because we have large tracts of land still. Now, how has the Trump administration like, what has been your reading of the administration so far? And I ask because what was interesting about, you know, I supported Hillary in the end. I was neutral during the primary and supported her publicly as we got to, uh, you know, Election Day. And there were a lot of people who just didn't believe him, right? Who were like, I'm not supporting Hillary because whatever. And like, he'll never win. And then he wins, right? And and he oh. has inflicted so much damage across so many areas uh, that I feel like we talk about a lot. But one of the things we do on the podcast is we sort of talk about the things that people don't talk about often. Uh, so I'm always interested in like what your read is on, on the administration, not only as 
a native activist, but also as like a thinker and as a scholar and as an activist in general, somebody who has spent a life sort of pushing against systems and structures. Uh, yeah. And now there's an administration that like is just so different than anyone we've lived under, like the, the way it's right. manifesting, maybe not some of the ideas. So I'd love to know what your take is so far. Let me start by saying within my community, but also within many, many native communities, Things actually haven't changed that much under Trump. Now, that's not a testament to him being in any way good. It's a testament to how invisibilized we have been. Just as an example, as a shorthand, under Reagan, the Blackfeet Nation, the Amskapipakani Nation, where where I'm from, we had 75% unemployment. Under Bush Sr., we had 75% unemployment. Under Clinton, we had 75% unemployment. Under Bush Jr., we had 75% unemployment. Under Obama, the best president ever in regards to Native people. That's a matter of historical and legislative fact, but it's a low standard. (laughs) Um, uh, We had 75% unemployment. Under Trump, we still don't have any meaningful economic development, nor any addressing those chronic and, and, and seemingly never-ending issues like health care and education. And so we still have exactly the same numbers. Now, Trump, he's an he's a unleashed um, you know, dragon. He wants to destroy everything and create, a, you know, a, he's an he's a unabashed capitalist. And so his, his um, policy, his main policy in regards to Native people has been to open up those markets, whether you're talking about exploitation of land, mineral, and fossil fuel resources— subsurface rights, you know, anything that's under the ground. He wants to open that up. So we have certain things. One thing is called trust land. And trust land is something where it's held in trust um, for the individual. It's held in trust for the individual. And that system was very destructive. It was created in with the intention of alienating the land from Native people because what you had, just like in the inner city, was it, it was essentially payday loans or a pawn shop. You have a bunch of broke people that were holding this valuable resource, land. And so you can sell that land. You can alienate that land. And what are broke people going to do if they're trying to feed their family? They're going to alienate that land. And that happened over and over and over again. Trump is intent upon bringing that system back where Native people can just completely unchecked, alienate their land, even though our communities still have 70, 75, 80 percent unemployment and there's no money circulating through. So people are going to make poor people decisions. And I'm not saying that with any sort of bad intent. I come from a poor family. My family has is absolutely honorable and brilliant family. But just you make different decisions when your pockets are feeling a little bit lean. And that's what, you know, Trump is banking on with in regards and, and specifically Trump's secretary of the interior. His name is Ryan Zinke. Um, he's a he's a unabashed and shameless capitalist as well. And he's trying to get as much stuff, get as much value from native communities as possible. What do you what do you say to people who young people, especially who who feel like they've done everything right? They protested, they called, they emailed, they ran for office, they petitioned, they like testified at the city council and still nothing changed. Like, what do you say to those people who feel like. They're like, why am I still doing this? Because they they put in so much energy and they haven't seen the impact that they thought it had. 
Yeah, I mean that's a that's a tough one. For for them, and I try to because I've been fortunate to have good relationships with a lot of lot of um, schools and and young folks, and um, some of them actually you know look up to me and and ask me for advice about stuff like that. And I, I try to bring it back to our our sources. So my heroes are uh, Martin Luther King and a man named Uncle Billy Frank, Uncle Billy Frank Jr. And in fact, his birthday was just the other day, uh, March 8th. And um, Uncle Billy Frank was trying to get the state of Washington to acknowledge the the treaty rights, the, the federally binding contract between the United States government and what he his nation, which is the Nisqually tribe. I used to live on the Nisqually reservation. Uncle Billy Frank, and, and he wanted specifically for them to acknowledge in regards to Uncle Billy's right to fish, as his mom and dad had, as his grandpa and grandma had, as his family had done since time immemorial. These salmon have sustained them and kept them alive. And it's a very simple request. I, I want to fish. But the state of Washington essentially said, no, you're supposed to be dead, Indian person. Um, you, we're not going to honor this treaty. You're not supposed to be around to redeem this treaty. And so Uncle Billy Frank, he he fished. He said, damn that. I'm still going to fish. I'm still going to do as my ancestors have done since time immemorial. I'm going to fish. And he did. And what happened? He got arrested and he got arrested and he got arrested and he got arrested. He got arrested and he got arrested and he got arrested. He got arrested, bro, 52 times from the ages of 14 to 43, 29 years, got arrested 52 times. And it wasn't like he was a wealthy dude that immediately bailed out. He would be there until they had a little arraignment and then he would be out released on his own recognizance. And, you know, but but this wasn't a well orchestrated political plan. It was just something that he believed in. And I think about that. I think in the midst of that, you know, the 22nd, the 23rd, the 30th, the 38th time, the 42nd time of getting arrested from the ages of 14 to 43, there had to be times within Uncle Billy's life that he thought, damn, this just ain't going to change. This is never going to change. But irrespective of whether I see that change, I have to do this with the belief that my children or my grandchildren will see that change. Similarly, my father is half black. So I come from that background. They, they're from my, my folks on my black side of my family. I'm, I'm, I'm native and black. My mom's full blood from, from black Brownie, Montana. My dad, he's, he's half black. His family comes from, from Fredericksburg, Virginia. And we're in the tradition of my grandpa, John Ross, his grandparent, his granddad was a slave. So I come from that tradition as well. And I think of that time scale as well from 1619 to 1865, 246 years. That's about 20 generations. That's a lot of generations. And I think about how many people during that time had to say, man, I don't even know my grandpa or my great grandpa or my great grandma or my grandma who was not a slave. This is never going to end. And in that situation, the absolutely reasonable outcome is say, hey, man, to hell with this. I'm just going to kill myself. But they didn't do it. 
They didn't give up. For some reason, there was something existentially and spiritually that kept them pushing that said, I'm going to continue to believe for the sake. Maybe my grandkids, maybe my great grandkids aren't going to be slaves and have to deal with this hell. And so I think of those traditions that we come from. And I realize uh, if, if, if the worst thing that I have is not seeing results right now, but I'm able to sleep at night in a bed and I'm able to to, you know, uh, uh, hang out with my kids in a free space that I got to keep pushing because people kept pushing through much, much more severe odds, through much more severe conditions. Well, we consider your friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Yes, sir. I'll talk to you soon. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. I uh, hope to see you back next week. And remember to visit ourstates.org. And we'll see you at one of the live shows. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats to keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Napa. Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shins that eliminate noise for the life of the pad, rubber-coated hardware for a better fit, and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. Napa.